This is Scott Stratton, co-author of Unselling, the new customer experience. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Scott Stratton, and we're going to talk about the latest book he has co-authored with his wife, Allison Kramer, Unselling, The New Customer Experience, which was named Sales Book of the Year by 1-800-CEO-READ. Scott Stratton is the president of Unmarketing. He's an expert in viral social and authentic marketing, which he calls Unmarketing. He was named one of the top five social media influencers in the world on Forbes.com and one of America's 10 marketing gurus by Business Review USA, which is even more exceptional because he's Canadian. With his wife, Allison Kramer, he's written three other best-selling books, The Book of Business Awesome, Unmarketing, and what, in my opinion, is the best marketing book title in the history of the printed word, QR Codes Kill Kittens, How to Alienate Customers, Dishearten Employees, and Drive Your Business Into the Ground. Scott and Allison are also hosts of the Unpodcast, where they talk about the week's brand blunders and train wrecks, send climbers up Moron Mountain, and even share the occasional good story or two. Scott has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, USA Today, Entrepreneur Magazine, CNN.com, Inc.com, Fast Company, and now the Marketing Book Podcast. Scott, congratulations on unselling, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. It's that last part of the bio that really is the feather in my cap. Well, you know, you got to work up to these things, I guess. It is. It is. It's all baby steps <laughs> until you get to the pinnacle. Um, that's right. That's right. Uh, that last part is just a little something for me. I can dream, can I? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what we do for the bio. Really, when it comes down to it in our industry, it's like we just half the things I've done in my life is just so I can put it in a bio. Well, and there's another something more important in your bio that I read that I didn't include, but boy, did it resonate with me in my home life, where it said that you and Allison are actually the 11th most important things mm-hmm. at your home like after the kids and the dogs five and- <laughs> kids and the dogs and the cats and the yep yeah so it's a, you know it's a, it's like a daily dose of humility to remind us kind of our, our true place in life yeah i get a, i get the i get the shower schedule once every month i think i get one a month uh, if i can fit it in so, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah it's a hygiene <laughs> issue for the most part yeah, a public service issue, actually. Um, <laughs> it's half the reason I go on the road is so I have a shower in the hotel. Yes, yes. And you're quite the road warrior. But let me ask you, Scott, is it true that, I've always wanted to ask you about this, you were a human resources professional until you realized you didn't like people? Mm-hmm. That's uh, actually what I went to college for. I went to college for HR. I went into the field. Now, the debate is whether I hated people beforehand and just didn't realize the impact in the industry or being in HR made me hate them. I, that's really up for debate. But I also taught it at college uh, for about seven years as well. I, in all seriousness, I love everything about HR. And I think HR and marketing actually have a lot of similarities. One, one is just simply marketing internally to people and one is marketing externally. And I love it. I love human rights. I love employment law. And it's a pa- certainly a passion of mine. I'd still be teaching now. If I wasn't on the road so much, I'd, I'd, um, I'd love it. Yeah, and also my my sense is that marketing and, and HR are getting pulled more and more closely together because of the culture that's required for companies to succeed. Oh, for sure. And I think that since, you know, that's what unselling is partly about is everybody's a marketer, everybody's in sales. And that means the most important marketing decision or sales decision you can make is hiring. 
mm-hmm. and who you hire and, and treating your I, I, HR at the core is attracting and retaining great people. That's what it comes down to. Right. And that's a, a very big part of marketing we're going to talk about. But let me just back up and maybe for the benefit of the listener, I have one thing I've got to admit to you. Your book brought me to tears. Which one? Unselling. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> they're, they're, all, they're all dramatic. But. Well, I was laughing so hard I had to take my glasses off and wipe my eyes. You know, and 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 I just want I just want the listener to understand that if you want to read probably the most entertaining business book you've read in a while, and at least for me, I read the book with a big grin on my face. I, I just right. I, it's it's like watching your talks. I've never seen you in person, but I've stalked you on YouTube as I mentioned before the show started, mm-hmm. and it's just like what's coming next? What's 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 going to be here? But. I laughed so hard. I was crying. It was the part about uh, aligning the motivations of your company and your employees. And it was uh, the thing about the Bic Pen and the Econo Lodge. Oh, I, I, then, yeah. I, I then started, my wife came upstairs and said, what is so funny? <laughs> and I said, I, 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 so I started trying to read it to her and I kept breaking up and laughing so hard. And to the point where she said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so it's, it's an experience reading the book. But let me, let me open with just one, uh, just Two little pieces from the book just to set the stage. And there's a couple specific things we want to talk about if we have time. Unselling is about everything but the sell. We put all of our focus on the individual purchase transaction while putting the rest of our business actions second. Mm -hmm. We've become blind to customer service, support, branding, experiences, and even product quality. Unselling is about the big picture, creating repeat customers, not one-time buyers, creating loyal clients that refer others, not treating people like faceless numbers, becoming the go-to company for a product or service before people even need it. So Scott, take us back. Tell us the story about how the book came to be and why you wrote it and who you had in mind when you were writing it. Well, it's amazing this kind of silo mindset uh, I've noticed in business through the years of, you know, you have your sales department, your marketing department, your service, customer service department, finance and operations, and they kind of all function in silos. And there's an internal fight for anything from budget to seats at the boardroom table to who is actually responsible for that ROI. And I always notice that sales was kind of like the the golden child of every operation. They're the ones that brought in the money, but they're not giving any credit to the impact that the other departments create. You know, that I find that, you know, for one-time sales and one-off sales, that might be a lot more marketing-driven than, you know, other places. It might be more marketing-driven than, um, than sales-driven sometimes. Mm-hmm. But any long-term customer, any customer that, comes back over and over again, there's a whole service aspect of that. There's a whole, you know, quality of product, that production that R&D came up with. And we have to give a credit across the board and and every department can't be looked at as overhead. So I realized that all the stories that got spread, all the stories that we share over a hundred episodes of the show and every day, I'm not exaggerating, every day people send us things on the marketing Facebook page and on Twitter. And it always starts with, did you see this? (laughs) You never want to be the company named after, did you see this? And every single story was about the post-purchase experience for the most part or a dumb marketing thing or they just dropped the ball when people complained or brought something up. And you realize that's got to have a huge impact on sales, not just the ability for somebody to sign a a PO or an invoice or a contract. There's much more than that part of the the sales process. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any businesses, I'm, I'm just scratching my head trying to think of any business that doesn't need repeat customers? Well, that's the thing. I, I, unless you're, I don't know, are you selling, I don't know, what would, I, 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 I can't a, spa- a space shuttle? I don't know. Like, what would be the one thing you're like, we're good? Yeah, but they need to buy more than one, you know? <laughs> and it's know, like, it's, uh, the, even pricey. the funeral director, he needs, he needs repeat business, but you know? I, but, but, and that's the thing. What business, here's really the, 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 the grander kind of circular question around it. What business doesn't need the ability to sell without having to remarket, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, that whole thing about how much it costs you to get a new customer than it is to have a repeat customer or word of mouth. Yeah. We, it's nothing new. Word of mouth costs you nothing. It's just depending on what words are coming out of their mouths. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know any business that doesn't want to lower their customer ac- acquisition cost. Yet when we talk about serving your clients, serving your customers, they're like, "Well, that's not sales. That's not <laughs> part of sales, right?" The sales team, your job, and I've been, a, I've been a national sales training manager. I've dealt with uh, you know, people at manufacturing level selling to distributors. I dealt with the distributor sales salespeople selling to those end users, and I've seen that they're just on the hunt for that next. The next one, on to the next. Yeah. It's like, it just keep going and going, and you're realizing you haven't returned the call of a current customer in three days. They're the ones who are rebuying. Those are the ones who are referring to you. Yeah, that's, that, that's where the money is. And that's where a, the huge impact is. A, a fellow Canadian of yours, Noah Fleming, mm-hmm. he wrote uh, Evergreen, and he talks about this phenomenon where he says that the reason this happens is because companies are addicted to sex. And what he means by that is the sexiness of hunting, getting that next new client, bringing yeah. them in, yeah. as opposed to, you know, farming, <laughs> which actually is where the money is. And the, but even look at the compensation. Look how that works. That mm-hmm. we, if, our, if my acquisition cost is lower by having a repeat buyer, I would actually increase commission on a repeat buy. I would actually look at it in an incentive way to keep customers, not just <laughs> get them, but keep them. I think there's a huge part of that. I think the employee who has, let's say, in a B2B sense, you know, giant portfolio clients that are worth millions each, if they have 10 of them, I think it's better if you keep 10 for 10 years and have to give 100 over 10 years once off each. I think that's more valuable. Mm-hmm. I think there's ways we structure that. I think that the problem is this endless pursuit of, of well, it's just got to be another one, another one versus we can actually increase margin. We can increase retention by focusing on. I'm not saying ignore your, the, the potential customers out there. I'm not saying there's not opportunities to get you know, your new clients and customers off your competition. Even that's one of the easiest games in the book. But just the, when we're not, we're looking forward all the time. That's a problem. We're looking mm-hmm. forward of who's next, who's next. We're not looking behind, and our competitors are just poaching them from us. <laughs> we're picking we up should, the water from our own leaky bucket. Yeah, but I firmly believe competition is your fault. That's as blunt as I can put it. Mm-hmm. The reason you lost a customer is your fault, and we never want to look at that. We never want to admit that we had something to do. Oh, it's the market conditions. It's the economy. It's I've heard this, especially in like retail. Oh, it's 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 showrooming. People mm-hmm. are coming into our store and they're taking and they're going on the internet tubes and they're buying it. I've sat, I've stood in stores and nobody's helped me. I've had money in my hand wanting to spend it, and I've walked out. Like and your, then when, uh, your, your Best Buy story where you my, said, my, I'm exactly. here to give my money to the somebody. Best Buy, my yodeling. I started yodeling in the middle of the store, and nobody helped me. And I went on Twitter and said, no wonder Best Buy is losing market share to Amazon. I'm standing right in the store with money, and nobody's helping me. And Best Buy's Twitter account, 30 seconds later, replies back and says, how can we help you? I'm like, what? <laughs> so if somebody in another country can answer me on Twitter faster than a retail employee on the floor beside me can. Yeah, we have a problem, and that's where 
we don't like looking in the mirror. And that's, that's, I know that's why people don't want to hear it a lot of the times, but mm-hmm. it's so true. Well, can you tell us the con? Explain the concept of the sales cloud as it relates to the traditional sales funnel that, that we're all uh, everyone's always so focused on. Yeah, the we, sales cloud is a very interesting concept for the for the listener. I think. Well, we have this whole you know you look depending on what study you look at and what data, but you know roughly sixty percent of buying decisions are made before coming into your funnel. I think, you know, classically in the older days, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they'd, people would come to you and say, you know, tell me about this. Tell me about this product, this service, whatever it is. And you could nurture them in your funnel. Mm-hmm. But now- Or strong arm like, them. Yeah, whatever you need to do, right? Yeah. You can blackmail, guilt them, you can push them, you can, you can interrupt their day 100 yeah. times until they bought, just to say uncle. And people hated that and still do. And they still, hey, but hey, knocking on doors and selling vacuums used to work. So, you know, that, but that's, a, it's a different day and time. It's a mm-hmm. different world. And now this sales cloud, we call it out there, where 60% of the buying decision is made, is made up outside of your control. But that's where, you're not powerless here, though, as a brand. Your job is to get content in there and people and connections and communities into that cloud. So then when they have that want or need, they think of you. Because everybody's pulling off that sales cloud. That's where social comes into play. That's where content marketing comes into play and SEO and you know, seminars and conferences. And reviews a huge powerful part of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, sometimes that marketing isn't up to you. It's up to the response and the result of your, your customer and your clients. I always said that branding is what statement your customer says about you, not what you say. Mm-hmm. And you also said rebranding is really French for spend ridiculous amounts of money and time you'll <laughs> never, ever, ever get back. It's what agencies, it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's, it's uh, Latin for more money. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, come from an agency background. I saw that and said, man, this, this uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the best branding definition I think I've ever seen. And, and like many things in this book, I'm going to, you know, be using them. And if I won that, big billion dollar uh, lottery recently. I think I, there, there are certain lines from your book I might have just taken out and bought, you know, billboards. <laughs> and but up on the billboard I would not have had a, a QR code. Just oh, I, I know you're wondering about that. Sweet fancy moment. <laughs> right. Can you explain the pulse concept? That's very interesting. Sure. The the whole thing is uh, customers have a pulse. And we have three types of customers or clients out there. They're static, ecstatic or vulnerable. And we think, and our, our perception of our customer and client base usually is they're ecstatic. The truth is most of them are static. They're just sitting there. And ecstatic is where the referrals happen and the repeat business happens. And vulnerable is where they slip down to. And that's where you're, you're open for getting poached. You're open for changing and they're ready to go. They're just looking for, see, change is really hard for people to do in a business sense and in a personal sense. But to the point we get pushed so far that we get, we, end up being vulnerable and changing. That could be from a, a large you know, trust level like a fi- financial planning or banking or uh, you know, mortgage or real estate or cars all the way down to a chocolate bar or a bag of chips or your daily coffee, you mm-hmm. know, switching that routine. And understanding where your customer base is on that pulse is huge. And here with the blips, how a pulse works, you know, it's hooking up that, right to that heart monitor, those little blips that go up and down, you actually can see them happening in your customer lifespan. The little phone call, email, or the tweet that says, hey, I'm not happy with this. And if you just notice that and let it go, it's like it's like noticing you have a heart problem and saying, eh, I'm fine. And you yeah, wonder I understand why that doesn't work well for people. You wonder why you end up in the hospital. Like, you wonder why you, and when do we find out we've lost a customer or a client? And you, the answer at every talk I give is always the same answer from the group, which is after they've left. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, when do you actually know you're losing one if you actually listen? And it's much earlier in the process. People, for the most part, there's also always, 
obviously some extreme examples of some big screw-ups and you're gone. But a lot of the times, it's a buildup of a lot of small things. Not returning that phone call when I need it. Shipping a little bit a day too later than you said you would. A little bit slip in product quality. It just takes those little, little bit of dents in the armor, those little blips that, that have a downward spiral in your pulse to make you actually just kind of pop out the door. And those little blips we call pivot points, mm-hmm. which is these little moments that, when I say pivot, I mean they can go either way. They can go up or down. And we choose which way those go. And that's where I mean everybody plays a part in sales and marketing that when customer service gets a phone call, you're affecting the brand right there. That pulse will go up or down depending on how you deal with it. Maybe it's Friday at 3 o'clock and you just, you just want to go home. And if you're in HR, I think it's probably Wednesday at 11. That's usually when we get upset and, and frustrated with people. And you're saying, well, it's time to go. That affects your customer base individually, one-on-one. And your customers are made up of individuals, whether your, your entire customer profile is 10 people or 10,000. Those little blips change things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you say every touch point with a customer is an opportunity to move the pulse. Mm-hmm. Another part of the book that I found very interesting and really resonated when I'm talking to companies is when you say your industry should never be an excuse for not being awesome. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that means? Whenever I tell stories, and uh, like the famous Joshi one, which opens up on selling and any kind of stories like that, the Delta one I talk about with the tweets on how they switched my brain around because they were re- really sincere, just on a tweet when I was really mm-hmm. ticked off at them, people always will say, well, they can do that because that's their that's their brand. Their brand is being great. They're like, different. They're different because they're they're great. Yeah. Like, what? What? Whereas like people, somebody just divvied it up and said, you can be great rescue, forget about it. Yeah, or, you, or in the financial services, we can't, they just won't let us talk like that. Yeah, we just can't do that. Are you kidding me? I know one one financial service company that has, does a, a, a kind of a program every year and each financial advisor gives their clients $100 cash and says, do something good for the world with it. And they have a book of stories from all the clients that have done something, from food banks to shelters to then taking the hundred and actually giving ten bucks each, and then giving it to students who go out and go to food banks and fill bags. Like it's just, and they have a, it's like an anthology. Like they have a giant book of all the things they've done with it. I'm like, you can do these things. You can do things that are awesome. It doesn't. I'm not saying do the same thing as everybody else. I would prefer if you don't. But they can be. People are like, well, this, we're, it's such a giant company, we can't do that. I have an example sitting right on my computer right now of Amazon, of a friend of mine who, who tweeted out and said, my daughter wants to be a fairy panda bear for Halloween. You know, and I'm looking on Amazon right now. That was his tweet. And Amazon wrote back and says, hey, uh, let us know your address. I think we can figure this out for you. Oh, because I was going to do that for Halloween too. <laughs> that was my go-to outfit. And two days later... He's got a fairy panda costume from Amazon, and I have photos that will just blow your mind. Uh, I'll send them to you so the listeners can can, can go check them out. And oh, they're just, Thanks. of course, they're like his three-year-old daughter just living the dream of a fairy panda bear. And that's that's Amazon. What's your excuse? Mm-hmm. They have a, a billion things happening a day, and they have one person sitting there saying, we're going to make this person's day. Yeah. <clears throat> a couple other gems I just wanted to, 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 to ask you about for the benefit of the listeners. You say social media – well, our – you didn't say this, but social media gets a lot of criticism, but actually it's it's not social media. It's it's an indicator of a larger business problem. Right. Do you see that a lot where the, the companies are blaming social media? <laughs> <laughs> if people are complaining about your product on Twitter, you don't have a Twitter problem. You have a business problem. Mm-hmm. I've seen people, a lot of people saying it about Yelp as well and TripAdvisor. Well, we get, we're getting killed on Yelp. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> this is where it comes out. It's not... 
nobody has a problem with Yelp or Twitter. It's a problem with what is being said because it's actually your issue. Mm-hmm. I had somebody, uh, when I spoke in Istanbul a few years ago, I did the talk and a woman stood up at the end with a Q&A and said, we're, we're, our product's getting killed on Twitter. How do we stop it? And I'm like, make a better product. She's like, I know you're very funny. It's a very funny talk. Um, but really, what do we do? <laughs> they, want a, they want a diet pill that's going to help them lose 100 yeah. pounds overnight. <laughs> you know they don't work, right? Like, it's, it's just, no, it's not. I mean, I'll sell it to you. <laughs> yeah, you can buy it. I can put you on an auto, automated buying plan every month if you want, but it's not going to fix it. It's just a, a result of a problem. And if we just don't want to admit to that sometimes. I, I actually truly believe some companies just don't care. They don't, it doesn't matter to them, but they wish it would all go. They don't care, actually. They're just going to keep selling whatever it is, usually a, a high-volume, low-margin product, and just say, whatever, just get it out the door, get it out the door. But we have this opportunity for, for brands and companies who, who do want to improve, that we have this constant flow of feedback that we never could have before unless we went out and begged for it or did mm-hmm. focus groups for it. Well, you used to pay a lot of money for that kind of feedback. Huge, huge. And I, I, I you know, I can... I get the debate too that sometimes it's just it's only the angry ones or only this. Well, you know, the angry ones are sometimes the ones you can turn into some of your best customers. Well, and true, but you also talk about how brands should be there to high five their customers. In other words, when somebody's singing your praises, you need to be there for that too. I think that we we are conditioned, and I'm like this myself. You know, I I react to a one star review on Amazon, but I ignore the five star ones. And a lot of brands do that. They're they're all set to go, and they're they're all at the ready, and when a complaint comes, boom, they're on top of it. But if I compliment them, it just kind of goes by the wayside. And then what happens is that erodes a bit. Now, I understand. Look, when I tweet a brand saying how much I love them, 95% of me is saying it because I want them to get recognition. I want people yeah. to see that. They like them. And 5% of me is like, I want the return of the high five. I want you to say, thanks so much, or that was all, or you're welcome. You know, just part of me is saying that. Yeah. I still remember the first brand that ever tweeted back to me, and that was Cirque du Soleil in 2009. They tweeted back to me, and I said, I love Cirque. I just love their shows. We've been to four or five times each show in Vegas, seen them in Toronto, seen them in Orlando, loved them. And I just said, I love Cirque, everything about them. And they wrote back and said, hey, thanks. We love you, too. Didn't they and I'm become just like, a client of yours, too? They did, yeah. I started doing uh, talks for them and chatting, and, and so we did you know a few events for them. And I've gone and paid full freight for these tickets every time I've gone to see it, and I'll do it again because everything was excellent. And that little part. Now, would I have stopped going to Cirque shows because they didn't say, we love you, too? No. But it just adds, it heightens that brand, and it gives me a story to tell about Cirque I wouldn't have told before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one other thing that I just thought was really interesting is you talk about how employee disclaimers, like when people mm-hmm. are on Twitter, it'll say, uh, opinion's my own, not that of my employer. Why is that indicative of a larger problem, and, and why, why is that actually the wrong idea? It's a huge issue, and this is where I kind of put my HR hat on as well and employment law side of things making people put on a twitter disclaimer says all tweets are my own and not a reflection of my employer is doing two things one it's giving people a false sense of freedom of speech which means if i put this disclaimer here i can say anything i want and it's not a reflection of my employer two it's a lie because it is the biggest reflection of an employer who works for this employer and it even gives employees a feeling like i don't matter Mm -hmm. what i would say is all tweets are my own and i'm a reflection of my employer Right. That's what I think it should be where because if you saw somebody who worked for ABC company, whatever it is, and they tweet something racist or sexist or off color, whatever it's going to be, you don't think you'll think different of that company next time you see it? Mm-hmm. I, I, I would. Mm-hmm. Like that woman who um, you talked about in the book where she, she made some racist thing when she was flying to Africa. Oh, and- God, yeah. Justine Sacco. Yeah. And she did. Uh, she doesn't want to get AIDS when she goes there. And she's like, I was just joking. And She said, I'm like, just joking. I'm white. 
Yeah. Hey, I'm like, it was, uh, it was funny. And I'm just and like, you know, you never forget it. I, I, I don't forget it. I, whenever, I remember when you see a brand, and we she see was a logo. On business for some NGO or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's, in, well, yeah, I just think anybody in PR should know better, anyways. Yeah. And I just, I just, just because you have 30 followers don't, doesn't mean 3 million won't see it, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Know, depending on what happens. So, and that's where if you have, if anything happens and then I see a logo, I'm going to remember that. And you are a reflection. That's where, that's why customers don't see silos. They don't see franchises. That one, a franchise in Florida can affect a, a franchise in Toronto because of what happens at that location, online or off. And that's a big impact to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One other thing that you talk about that it's, you know, it's almost easier to explain than it is for companies to do, but it really rang a bell with me, which is where you say, let the customer's concerns become yours. And it's really, uh, to me, obvious when I'm dealing with a company where they have empowered employees and it's almost as if they said, solve for the customer. D- don't think about yourself. Just solve for the customer, which requires you to listen and, and take the right action. Right. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? There's two reactions to a customer bringing up a problem. It's not my problem or it's our problem. One of the two. That's it. That's all there is. I don't care what format you're in, where you work, what industry. When you hear something comes up, you either try to say, how do I make this not my problem? How do I cover my backside? How do I make sure this has nothing to do with me? Or actually saying that to customers, by the way, it's not my problem. I've heard that. Or we got to fix this. We got to make this right. It's just two types of reaction. And I, I honestly, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't, I don't know if you can train that. I think you can hire that. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, th- I have people who who just want to protect themselves, and I think it's more of a cultural thing. Now, that that might not be because of the individual. That could be because of a manager that just comes down on them and makes sure that you know you can't get involved in these problems, and it's not our problem or it's not our department. And it's a whole culture thing. And I think you've got to have that from top down. Is like a, a one person's problem is the company's problem, and we need to do something about it. Yeah, and I know I said I was in tears in the book reading it because I was laughing so hard, but there was actually one part that almost did kind of had me tearing the opposite way. And that was a story about the mother who had the autistic child at Disney. Right. And right. they were, he was going to the Jedi uh, training academy. Training yeah. academy, And it started to rain and he wasn't able to participate. And he'd been such a good boy. And mm-hmm. can, can you finish that story? That was just amazing about how Disney solved that problem. So it was, the mother was just predicting the meltdown that was going to happen. And she was trying to explain to him that, it wasn't going to happen that day. And that was the only day they could do it. And, you know, here's the thing is Disney didn't solve the problem. An individual who worked for them did, who mm-hmm. spotted it. And he's one of the Jedi training guys. And he saw them, the, the, how upset the, the child was. And he came over and he brought a lightsaber with him and he knelt down in front of him. And he said, this is, you know, it, I, I'm sorry that we couldn't do the thing today, but I brought this specially for you you know, straight from the Jedi's himself. And this is for you and gave him the, the lightsaber and just spent a few minutes with him. And, he, and she said, she wrote a letter and she said that you changed our lives mm-hmm. from that moment. And he'll never, ever forget that. And that was one individual. It's raining. It's gross outside. You're just in costume. It's your job. You're, and, and he said, this is my, I need to do this. And here's the thing. People like that do that without expectation of praise. Mm-hmm. They do that because that's what's right to do. And, but it blew up. The story was huge. And it, it was went on the viral. Huffington Post, wasn't it? Yeah, huge. It went everywhere. It went around the world. Made the guy famous for it. And he's just like, well, you do that because it's the right thing to do. 
That's well, the people you got to find. That's what I think Disney was the, is still really good at is finding the great people who just who give a damn. Like we're we're about to go in two months. We're going to go on our fourth Disney cruise with the whole the whole family bus. You know, of of all of us and the kids, and it's a big event. And I heard big, those are really nice cruises. And man, I, we signed up for this upcoming cruise on the last one. That's how good it is that wow. we just said we're just we're doing this again and again and again, and it's the individuals. It's it, obviously the ship's beautiful and there's all these cool little Mickey logos everywhere and it's awesome. Food's great, but the people, man, the people, they just they they know their job is to make your day. Yeah, it was. I saw recently Tom Webster posted on social media that he'd gone on a Disney cruise and he said, "Folks, this is not like you know the Love Boat. This is really <laughs> really different." And he would go back. Tom is one of my favorite people in the world. And when Tom says, he's on, probably also the more one person who's more sarcastic than I am. And uh, yeah, he would give a, an honest opinion straight. And uh, seeing he liked it too was, was perfect because it is. You just can't find it costs more and it's better. Uh-huh. Really what it comes down to. And re- when you take care of somebody's kids, you take care of the parents. Mm-hmm. We don't see the kids, man. We we actually we ha- we ha- we make a mandatory dinner each night. They have to show up just so we'll see them. You oh, know, really? Part of the day. It's oh amazing. wow! Because of the segmentation of the clubs and the way the ages are closer together and how well they run it, and, and you know, and we're this time we're going to down to Saint Martin and uh, then, then Castaway Key is our private island, and it's just like we just can't get enough. Like we're like it's we were never cruisers. I'm not a cruise guy. I was never a cruise guy. I'd yeah. never gone on them. And four or five years ago, we did a, we did a media cruise for like forty eight hours or something to test it out. We're like, man, we should really try this. And we did three nights and uh, with the family. We're like, that was awesome. We have to go more. And then we did seven. And then we did seven again. And now we're like, maybe we can do fourteen. Oh wow! Maybe yeah. we can do Panama Canal. Like that's where that's how good that brand is. Yeah, um, and, and here we are talking about it, but it, it really is instructional. Before we wrap up, we just have to talk about one other thing, and that's booth babes at trade shows. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Come on, Scott. Now, in the book, you say, I guess I just thought this was so funny, and again, you nailed the hit the nail on the head. You said using booth babes is a lot like using swag, especially swag unrelated to your product. And I I, I thought that was accurate. And then you talked about somebody who actually did a split test at a show. Tell tell the listener about that. Well, you you go back, and it it feels like we're in the 60s or the 50s or the 70s even that you're just saying this is how things are sold in a male dominated environment you just put somebody who's attractive in front of it and it knows nothing and their job is to pull people in it's just a weird such a weird dynamic that happens like our product isn't that great that we got to do something to to blow people's minds and at least it's shifting a bit now to more kind of celebrity appearances at events where i was in one booth signing books and across from me was slater from Saved by the Bell and bringing people into their booth, I'm like, all right, we're going, we're going one on one here, man. It's it's we're we're attracting. So, I guess I was the booth babe for that type of thing. But uh-huh. the the actual number of actual quality leads that came in without the booth babes was incrementally higher than the ones <laughs> right. with it, because people were just coming in just to talk to them, and it doesn't matter if they were targeted or not. And I just, it's so antiquated. It's so gross now mind you if somebody male or female is attractive and they work for the company oh good on you awesome that's cool it's a it's a basic function of, of human nature to your you, your eye goes to somebody who's more attractive for you but to have somebody there simply to be a physical specimen to bring people in i just don't know if that's what you want to you want to do <laughs> yeah i was at a car show this last weekend with my 20 
one-year-old son, and he was just he was making a comment about how absurd he thought it looked. And these you know, these poor models are standing there all by themselves. No, nobody's going up to talk to them. And I just I happened to see that. And I just thought that's that's a that's a great way. And it's probably the same kind of companies that have those annual calendars with the pictures of. <laughs> You know, women in bikinis holding up, uh, you know, wrenches and stuff like that. Exactly. exactly. I'm sure they're well, still out there. And they say, well, hey, it works. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Good on you. Okay. Right. Go ahead. Whatever. You know, yeah. whatever that means, works means. And okay, you know, it's, it's, it's or you like to do it. You know, either yeah, way. I think the boss kind of likes it. And yeah. uh, that's why the boss goes to the shoot. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, well, other than what you kind of touched on, which is, let's not take ourselves too seriously here is the fact that you know, everybody's a salesperson and we need to make sure that they understand that and empower them to make those decisions that influence those customers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and never use QR codes and never. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> so are there any recent marketing books that you'd recommend for the listeners? Uh, we actually got, a, there's a couple coming out um, that I would, the Mobile Revolution already came out with Tom Webster and Tim Hayden's book. Which yeah, and he's been on the show. Yeah, great, great stuff. Great data and and, and, and studies and, and just opinions. I love those guys, Yeah, both of them. And uh, But coming out soon, actually, there's a couple ones. There's uh, uh, Jay Bear is going to have um, Hug Your Haters, mm, yeah. which looks, well, looks phenomenal. He actually worked with Tom Webster and Edison Research to do some new, you know, their own research based on people's negative reactions and reviews and things. I think it's a fascinating focus of a book. Tim Sanders has a new one coming out as well. And it's gone off the tip of my tongue, but it's a, um, a, a sales book as well that you can look at. Anything he puts out is, is fan- ever, ever since Love is a Killer app. It's been great stuff ever since. So We'll make sure to look it up and put it in the show notes at Marketing Book. Yeah, it's uh, um, some great stuff. So you know, keep a lookout for those two. Um, and there's... Uh, um, I'm floored by how much how much great stuff you know comes out all the time, and I'm I'm one of the best parts of doing what I do, you know, doing keynotes and books and the show, and uh, we're actually working on a documentary now. Is the fact that I get to know most people I've I've you know loved reading and 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 that I can call now friends. It's it's actually kind of surreal for me, you know. Since my grade ten English teacher said I'd never amount to writing anything, you know, it's just like it's you and David Muirman Scott, yeah, right, you know, and that's and I know him, like it's just like I go into a business section of of, of a Barnes and Noble or anything, I'm like I know half these people, yeah, yeah, well, and 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 it's really exciting for me too, which is one of the reasons I did the podcast. It's just such a, it's so exciting to be able to read a book. And Excuse actually, the dogs in the background, by the way. I'm this sorry. This is a dog-friendly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they sound they're, great. They're down two floors, but it's coming through the ventilation. Yeah. But it's great to be able to, to reach out and meet these folks. And anyone who reads a book nowadays, at least marketing books and business books, it's just so exciting to be able to tweet to them. And just like you said, get a re- response back from Cirque du Soleil. It's, it's very different. Maybe it's from having been an English major and reading Shakespeare, and I was never able to tweet him. You know, he's he's just not active on social media. <laughs> but that's true. The access, though, is very cool, right? That you can just reach out. I don't think you've ever, it, the humans have never had this kind of no. experience. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So how can listeners best find out more about you and your book and your empire? Unmarketing is everything. So I go to Unmarketing on Facebook, Twitter, Unmarketing.com. Unpodcast.com is also the same place and, and listen to the show and pretty much unmarketing on most platforms where they are or anywhere fine books are sold. Okay. Final quote. Valuing people is at the heart of unselling. Treating our employees, vendors, and customers well is the start of creating amazing experiences and standing out in today's busy world of information and reviews. 
hire for passion. Create quality products, service, and content worth sharing. Make it easy for fans to tell your story for you. Facilitate community around your product or service. That is the way to create an ecstatic customer base. That's unselling. The name of the book is Unselling, The New Customer Experience. The authors are Scott Stratton and Allison Kramer. Scott, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. And that closes the book on the 58th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, which I'm happy to say has been named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for show notes, free resources, and marketing guides. And while there, be sure to join the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you love the show, please do me a favor right now, unless you're driving or operating dangerous machinery, open up a browser on your phone or computer and type in love.marketingbookpodcast.com. That's love.marketingbookpodcast.com. That will generate a pre-formatted tweet with a link to the show that you can share with the world on Twitter. And you'll get a personal thank you from me for spreading the love. And please join us next time as we talk with Martin Lindstrom about his new book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Unless you want to go 56 minutes. I know that's important to some of your listeners. (laughs) 